national parks from a global perspective. I would say that um, in, in U.S. national parks historiography that I'm most familiar with, um, I think uh, national parks are very much uh, understood as a, as a national phenomenon. A roundtable discussion with participants from the recent National Parks Beyond the Nation colloquium. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 25 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. While Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan's six-episode PBS documentary series framed national parks as America's best idea, that idea hasn't been limited to the borders of the United States. The world's first National Park Service was established in Canada in 1911. The world's largest national park is in Greenland. The Mongolian government claims Bogd Khan Ul National Park as the oldest national park in the world, first designated for protection in 1783. The U.S. model for national parks has obviously been influential in parks history, but to what extent was the national park's idea part of an international movement? This past September, the Public Lands History Center and the Department of History at Colorado State University hosted an interdisciplinary colloquium that looked at the national park idea from a global perspective. National Parks Beyond the Nation brought together 12 leading environmental history scholars for a four-day workshop to explore their research on national parks in an international context. Four of the workshop participants recently sat down with me to discuss some of their ideas and arguments about the history of national parks around the world. Hi, I'm Alan McCachran. I teach history at the University of Western Ontario, and I'm the director of NICHE, the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Hello, I'm Adrian Hawkins. I teach in the history department at Colorado State University. I'm Emily Wakefield, and I teach in the history department at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Ted Catton, and I'm with the History Department at the University of Montana. Well, welcome to the conversation, everybody, and thanks for uh, joining us here. We're talking about national parks and the position of national parks globally. So I just wanted to open up the conversation and ask the group uh, to what extent national parks are truly national, or is there, in fact, a global national parks movement? Yeah, let me, st- let me jump in. I'll, uh, I'll, this is Ted, and... Uh, I would say that um, in, in U.S. national parks historiography that I'm most familiar with, um, I think uh, national parks are very much uh, understood as a, as a national phenomenon. Um, I would say that uh, the most influential uh, work in this field still would be uh, Alfred Runte's National Parks, the American Experience. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he argues that, uh, I imagine many people are familiar with this, but he, he argues that um, uh, in the 19th century there was a strong impulse to preserve scenic landscapes in the U.S., which sprang from uh, the nation's sense of uh, what he refers to as a cultural anxiety, that uh, the nation lacked the, uh, uh, the uh, great uh, works of, of art and architecture that Europe had. And so we would compensate for that with uh, preserving our scenic uh, grandeur, our scenic landscapes. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so uh, that's what drove uh, the National Park uh, movement in the the early years. And I think it still manifests uh, in the 20th century um, in our national parks in, in 
things such as uh, the fact that uh, uh, the National Park Service uniform is modeled on the uniform of the U.S. Cavalry, so there's this sort of sense of, of a kind of a paramilitary organization uh, running the national parks. Mm -hmm. um, the great entrance gates that uh, you find in some of the national parks. Um, and also just uh, the, the emphasis on standardizing national park policy around the nation, uh, standardizing our planning processes, um, and the national park architecture that you encounter in the parks, the, uh, the government rustic buildings, all sort of manifests a, a really strong sense of national identity in the national parks. Alan, what do you think? Is this global at all, or is it profoundly uh, U.S.? Well, I think it, obviously it started out as U.S., but I do think that there's there's uh, developed a kind of sense now that parks are are like flags, uh, that each nation is expected to have one, and I think you could argue, I mean, just in the way that almost all flags, national flags around the world are basically the same uh, shape, that uh, national parks are are uh, are quite similar to one another, uh, in part because as kind of, I think, referencing the American model, but also just because there's, there's developed a kind of an idea of what, uh, what a national park is, just like what a flag is and what the natural shape of it should be. Emily, is a national park like a flag? Well, I was going to offer up a different analogy and say that um, national parks are actually more like national cuisine uh, in that the flavor that they have and the ingredients and even the affinity for them varies by nation, but most nations have one. And um, so to that extent, yes, they, they are national, and we know certainly that um, uh, environmental historians have told us that culture shapes nature quite dramatically, and we also know that nations shape culture, uh, perhaps disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And so um, then we can get an idea for how um, uh, nations have shaped the nature within their boundaries. But I don't think that that is the only level that it's important to look at. I, I wouldn't argue that there is a global national parks movement, because movement implies some sort of cohesion. Um, and, and I don't think that's the case, but there's long been mm -hmm. transnational and international dialogue about nature. Um, and so the role of uh, science and scientific knowledge and, and experts in, um, in shaping national parks, I think, has been stronger to a certain degree outside of the United States than it has within. Um, and so I would afford these kind of transnational agents uh, a place in shaping um, national parks as well, and it's not—it's not serendipitous that many nations have parks like they have flags or cuisine. Mm -hmm. um, parks are very much a reaction to changes in the world economy in the late 19th century, and they grow out of particular experiences of. Um, of settling uh, areas far from political and economic centers, and um, so that that process occurred in many places around the world um, is, is an important part of the story. So, Adrian, do you see this similarly as uh, not necessarily a global movement, but uh, a movement that has transnational connections? I think um, when you start looking at parks uh, internationally, one of the first things that comes up is parks in different countries are very different. And mm. so uh, as we, whether, whether we call them flags or, or food, 
it does highlight the the importance of the of the nation. But then also, I think looking at parks from this uh, in, international perspective um, helps us to see global trends that aren't immediately obvious if we just look at a national park within a nation. So um, I think some of these are, are fairly obvious, such as um, the, the the five world conferences in national parks that have been held to to discuss park policy in, in different places. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the interesting things we talked about was that the, the first two of those in, I think, uh, 1972 and 19, um, 1962 and 1972 were both held in the United States, but then they went out from there um, into um, different countries. I think uh, Indonesia and Venezuela and South Africa hosted the, the parks uh, conferences after that. Um, so there's sort of obvious uh, international movement around that. But there's also quite a few um, global histories relate to parks that uh, aren't necessarily quite so obvious. We talked quite a bit about um, Cold War histories of uh, national parks. How did they, they fit into sort of the, the diplomatic history of the middle of the, the 20th century? And then uh, Mark Carey from Oregon, University of Oregon, presented a very interesting paper on climate change and national parks. And of course, hmm. climate change is a very global um, phenomenon, and different national parks in different places respond to that differently. But it's uh, a common trend um, among national parks around the world. So did you all find that the transnational linkages between different jurisdictions became more significant uh, later in the 20th century than, say, in the early 20th century or late 19th century? Hmm. Well, um, I'm not sure this will answer your question quite directly, but I was just going to say I, I think that uh, you can say there is a national, an international park an international movement for national parks, mm-hmm. um, but I would just characterize it as being a very weak one. I think that uh, um, after World War II, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature really took up the uh, the uh, crusade. I guess uh, has been the the uh, probably the, the the leader in this. Um, and as Adrian mentioned, um, the world. Congress on National Parks has been a, t- a every 10-year event since 1962. Um, but uh, so I think you can identify um, that there is a movement, and I think one of the strengths of the movement is it it, it uh, is attempting to uh, achieve some level of standardization of what a national park should be um, around the world, what it should accomplish. Um, but I think what's what's really evident is that it's it's a very weak movement. Um, it just, you know, compared to uh, the uh, leadership or the impetus for national parks that springs at the from the from the level of the nation state. Do others agree that this is sort of more tenuous, more weak uh, international connection? I think, in some ways, it, it parallels the, the growth of the, the global environmental movement over the last what 30, 30 40 years, wherever we uh, pinpoint that, mm-hmm. and. Um, some of the some of the papers were were very interesting um, in looking at ways. Uh, what one that springs to mind is uh, Steve Rodriguez's paper on uh, national parks in Indonesia, where Suharto was was using national parks to make a an international statement about the the conservation agenda of his of his government or the um, preservation agenda of his government, and really ignored uh, the the needs of Indonesian nationals when he was uh, creating parks and pushing the the parks in the in the country. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it, it parallels international trends uh, that aren't just about parks, but in environmental history more broadly. Well, it sounds like uh, each of you are 
reaching some kind of consensus that in each of these different national jurisdictions, the development of national parks played out uh, with very specific uh, differences relative to uh, the particular nations um, in terms of the context. So in that context, let's take a single theme here of uh, conflict between local peoples uh, and indigenous populations or, or non-Aboriginal rural peoples, which seems to have been a, a prevalent theme in the U.S. literature on national parks, but to what extent was this uh, a, an international uh, conflict? How did this kind of conflict play out in different national jurisdictions? This is Emily, and I look at um, Latin America in particular, and um, I think it, to a certain extent the story of local peoples and indigenous populations around national parks hasn't been historicized yet for this region, but what we do know about it is that there is as much coexistence as there, as there is conflict for Latin America, and in this way it makes it much more like um, uh, European parks, perhaps, than hmm. the United States per se. And, um, you know, there are a couple uh, specific regional reasons for this. Um, most uh, the, uh, assessment um, in the late 1990s said that 85% of parks and reserves in Latin America have people within them. Um, so it's disproportionately more parks have people, but they have fewer people than, say, Africa or South Asia around parks. And so the pressures are quite different in Latin America, and there has been a greater emphasis um, by nations and nation, nation states um, to give uh, local and indigenous people a place at the table um, determining how parks are, are managed. And so this social orientation towards parks um, in the region came about much sooner in Latin America um, than, than in the United States. So I think that's one reason why some of the conflict has been avoided and it's led more towards um, coexistence. Hmm. Uh, is the situation similar in the Canadian context, Alan? I think so. Um, uh, well, I, I, here's what I'd say. I think that the way you started off this question was by asking this in reference to uh, American national parks. And mm -hmm. I think that, that um, one of the things that I wanted to circle back to is the fact that um, that as much as we were um, in the workshop, and I think in the, in the coming volume that I hope is going to come from this workshop, um, as much as we talked about national difference, I think we were, we were very much kind of playing off the um, – uh, the American model for national parks, to what degree the uh, Americans have been a model for what's gone on in national parks globally. And I think we were very much playing off um, the existence of the uh, Ken Burns documentary series, uh, America's Best Idea. I think we, we wanted to see how much, um, to what degree, national parks were America's best idea and, and to what extent... Uh, that that idea has been imported internationally, and how much it's changed in the uh, in being imported. Um, I'm sorry, I think I moved off pretty dramatically from the question you asked. <laughs> no, but this is a, a, an interesting area that we should discuss. Then, I mean, uh, what was the what was the consensus? What was the the nature of that discussion? Well, there were a bunch of historians. I don't think there was any consensus. <laughs> 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 Um, I mean, I, I, I threw that out, that idea about uh, parks being like flags a few minutes ago. I mean, I, I for, for one, couldn't come away with it from our discussions without – I wasn't entirely sure whether or not – were other parks 
did other national park systems that were developed around the world, did they develop in some ways similar to the U.S., especially, I think, early in the 20th century, in essentially because they had a shared aesthetic, because because people had the same idea for what national parks should be, and they appreciated the same sort of aesthetics about nature? Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, did they basically seek a shortcut? Um, I, I, I can't get my head around maybe uh, we shouldn't think about the Americans, not so much as a model, but just as, as a shortcut that um, imitation is not so much the sincerest form of flattery as it is the simplest form of laziness, that other countries, when they went to, to develop their park system, they just looked at what already existed. I think the, uh, the Suhaku um, case in, in Indonesia is, a, is an example of that, uh, that shortcut model and not really considering the needs of, of the nation, um, and, and Steve Rodriguez was, was talking about that, and uh, an example of perhaps the, the population and the, um, the government being at, at odds with what a, a national park um, should be and should be to the people. And I think one of the advantages of taking the, um, the international approach is it sort of de facto brings you a comparative perspective and, and puts different examples next to each other. So a lot of, our, um, a lot of the papers in the uh, colloquium touched on the, the, the theme of the, the indigenous people um, and very quickly demonstrated that um, models, um, the, the U.S. model, if, if there was such a thing, um, didn't really apply to places. Uh, the, the South African example, um, mm-hmm. we had a paper from Jane Carruthers uh, talking about uh, apartheid and post-apartheid uh, parks in, in South Africa. And there you have a very different um, situation where parks are for the, the, the minority um, for a long period of time. And then what happens, what is the, um, the, the social buy-in to, to parks after the, the end of apartheid? And that's, that's very different from, I think, the, the U.S. model where parks are meant to be very democratic and everyone owns the parks um, in, a certain, in a certain sense. And, um, but I think also um, some just little, little things that the comparative approach sometimes uh, reveals and, and who, who is benefiting from having a, a national park in your vicinity? Is it the, is it the locals? Is it uh, a distant government far away? Um, Chris Conte, who was uh, presenting on the, the Rift Valley in Africa, suggested that quite often it was international agencies that, uh, that were benefiting. So I think each, each situation can be very different when you're asking this question about the, um, the indigenous people and the dispossession and, and so on. But there are definitely um, similarities and differences between the examples. And one of the other threads that came out, and Alan's comment just reminded me of this, is that by, by taking the term national park rather than one of um, many types of conservation that most nations have in mm-hmm. their uh, protected area portfolio, portfolio, we do privilege the United States. And Paul Sutter reminded us that even this, this so-called Yellowstone model or um, the idea of a national park has a kind of stutter step history in the United States. Um, but by using the term national park, we kind of reinforce um, its idea at the center of this portfolio of conservation. And that's not necessarily the same story globally. Um, countries have monuments and reserves and, and, and nature parks um, that, that have as much meaning in their societies as as a national park. So in some ways, by privileging that, that singular concept over the larger portfolio, we, we have a certain set of discussions. Um, and I, I like to tell people that the oldest nat- nature park in the hemisphere is actually Chapultepec Park in Mexico City, um, which is 
it's kind of counterintuitive, um, but it was a, a zoo long before the Spanish arrived and then was a public park upon mm -hmm. um, Spanish colonialism and is today the, the most popular park, certainly, in Mexico. And, and, uh, excuse me, this is Ted. I'd like to just uh, amplify on that point a little bit that um, not only are the U.S. not only are the U.S. national parks privileged by focusing on the national park label, but um, I think we found that, uh, that that the Yellowstone National Park becomes sort of a, a touchstone for so, so many other nations around the world, mm -hmm. and it's ironic because in one, in many ways the Yellowstone is atypical, even of United States national parks. That uh, it it becomes a a kind of a yardstick of what a national park should look like, and yet. Yellowstone is, you know, one of our biggest national parks. It's it's one of the it's one of the maybe the only ones that has its complete complement of, of all the original animals in it. Once they reintroduce the wolf, mm -hmm. um, it's it's a national park that gets swarmed by two million people a year. So consequently, it's it's got an enormous budget and an enormous staff. Um, so you know, it's just—it's not that typical of even a United States national park, and yet it, Yellowstone has this enormous cachet around the world as as the as the sort of the uh, the model. Um, and I think, as Jane Carruthers pointed out, it's ironic because uh, when in the 1872 Act establishing Yellowstone, which is so often pointed to as the uh, origins of the national park idea, mm -hmm. it wasn't called a national park; it was called a public park. Um, and it only became known as a national park subsequent to that. So um, it's just there's a lot of irony, I think, in, in uh, the emphasis uh, placed on on the, the national park label. That's that's actually quite interesting. So what what does this tell us then? I guess about this the sense that there's a U.S. model. Is it really a U.S. model, or is it about a particular? Um, is it about specific uh, particular historical moment or a particular geography that was influential? Um, yeah, I think it is um, a lot the, the latter case. Uh, right, because presumably there aren't a lot of national parks in Europe that are setting out to emulate uh, Alaskan national parks or national parks in Minnesota. Right. I think, and I, I don't know, I guess one thing that has struck me from participating in the colloquium and um, looking at all the national parks to a more international perspective is how um, in the 20th century, early 20th century, um, Europe was proceeding along very different lines in, in establishing national parks in Sweet, uh, a Swedish example. Um, uh, other countries in Europe started creating national parks that were just looked very, very different from the U.S. national parks. Um, and so, uh, I, I it seems to me that the the, the sort of global movement to uh, uh, replicate the national park idea around the world is is primarily a post World War II one. But I don't know. That's that's kind of the impression I, I come along with. I yeah, to, I would. I, sorry, go ahead, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> I would echo that and say one of the, I think, um, most surprising things to come out of the colloquium was the attention that Switzerland received in, in a lot of different contexts. And Patrick Cooper talked to us about um, about uh, Switzerland. Um, but many of the, of the different case studies around the world had a Swiss influence, and I think that was something that none of us would have expected um, that to be present as, as 
uh, not necessarily as much as the United States, but um, in a surprising fashion. And, and the second thing I'd like to say about the geography is that um, I think we also see a trend towards temperate aesthetic landscapes and the protection of temperate areas first internationally. And then it's really after World War II that the tropics enter into the story. And they enter into um, tropical nations, but also um, uh, nations that have both temperate and tropical um, areas for nature protection. Um, they enter in under a very different uh, scientific regime and scientific understanding of how nature functions. And um, that has important consequences for where parks are created and how large they are and how they're designed. So I wanted to get back to something Alan brought up <clears throat> about the colloquium, uh, about uh, lack of consensus among historians. Uh, just as four participants, what were some of the points of debate? Well, I think the, um, the, the fundamental, well, the title of the colloquium, National Parks Beyond the Nation, um, looking from a global perspective at uh, national parks and nation states, it sort of, the, the conclusions go two different ways. On the one hand, you're getting a, a sense that the, the nation state is fundamentally important to, to national parks. On the other hand, you're getting all these international connections um, that we've been, we've been talking about and, and uh, changing over time. And I think one of the interesting things, going back to your, your last question, was that um, if you start thinking um, about the U.S. model, how, what is exporting the U.S. model, just by thinking internationally, it goes back and it really challenges that idea of the U.S. models we were talking about with, with Yellowstone and, and so on. And um, this really does... One of the things that struck me was how things do change over time. I think there's a, a tendency to see parks not necessarily as, as timeless, but uh, they're rooted in the landscape, rooted in place, and uh, the, the differences, the changes over time, um, sometimes are, are easy to to ignore. Um, but if you, particularly if you look comparatively internationally at the things, you you get a sense of of the mutual influences. So. Um, <coughs> One of the examples of that would be uh, Patrick Cuppin, uh talking about Switzerland again. Um, science, right from the beginning, was, was prevalent in, in Swiss national parks, and it took a lot longer to be adopted in, um, in parks in the United States. And uh, each, each country in the world has got its own particular trajectory of, of science and conservation and landscape and, and so on with that. So I guess that picks up a little bit on, on my last question here for the group about nation states and whether or not, uh, or how much do they matter in the study of, of national parks? It sounds like quite a bit. I, I think so. I think that they remain the most important category, I mean, sort of geographic scale for, for understanding national park creation and how they're managed. Uh, I mean, national parks can be understood or, or studied from a, from the low you know there's a local perspective um, which it not, not which includes not just the uh, the people that live in the area but also the uh, peculiarities of the local ecology mm -hmm. um, there's a regional perspective and then there's a the national and then there's a the global and I think they all play a part but um, I, I guess it, to me it, it comes back to the, the nation state is the one that's that's uh, has the resources. Uh, it's 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 um, controlling the agency that controls the national park, um, and it remains the most important category. I'm. Uh, I would like to point out that um, 
uh, Karen Rutledge from Parks Canada and I wrote two quite different papers about the relationship between the Canadians and the Americans, actually, in the, in the 20th century, I think. Mm. And I think the reason for the difference was that um, I was looking at the, the conversations that went on between the Canadian and, and American Park Services in the 1910s, and I was looking in the 1910s, and I was looking very much at the national level at how Ottawa was talking to Washington mostly. Um, and I was finding that they weren't really they weren't really talking to each other very um, very closely. They they weren't always listening to one another, or hearing one another, I should say. Whereas Karen was finding uh, in her study of uh, the relationship between uh, Waterton Lakes National Park and um, Glacier Nas- uh, um, Glacier National Park right across the border in the U.S. Mm. Um, she was finding that the local was extremely important. That and then I think in many ways I think what she concluded was that they were they were ignoring the, the lack of conversation or, or clear conversation that was going on between um, the two national park services, but they found uh, it critical that they speak to one another across the border. And do you think that's really specific to the case of Glacier and Waterton Lakes? I think that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, I think maybe that does say the kind of the importance uh, of the local, and maybe maybe international border parks are a good way of of uh, bringing nations closer together. But then again, maybe that only brings them together at a very local level, and doesn't mm-hmm. uh, have any kind of national or international effect. I think the uh, the fascinating thing about Karen's paper, looking at uh, bear policy in particular, was that bears, of course, have got no no respect for national borders, and they they wander across um, the the border as if it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And one of her points was that. Um, it matters more for the bears and for bear policy, um, whether you're in the park or out of the park, um, either on the Canadian side or the um, the U.S. side of the of the border. So she was getting towards arguing that in some ways um, the national border is is less important in this case than the the park borders themselves, and the parks themselves have a sort of uh, a sovereignty over the animals within them. And uh, I think that's not just the case with animals. Um, you could you could look at uh, pollution and acid rain and Global global warming um, as examples of the ecology or the of nature, the environment um, transcending national national borders, and in some ways making them meaningless in in some instances. And, and I think the, the glacier Waterton example is probably somewhat unusual, unusual in that the U.S. and Canada uh, park uh, agencies are pretty closely aligned in their policies, um, and there's there's just not that great a disparity between the two nations compared to, by contrast, for example, uh, the United States and Mexico, where there's quite a disparity in wealth and, uh, you know, I I would imagine, well, as Emily's already suggested, you know, conceptions of nature and the people, the the role of of indigenous people in nature and so on. And Emily, uh, your study of uh, the border situation along the Rio Grande and uh, Big Bend National Park and Mexico's National Park uh, proposals down there doesn't that point to quite a quite a difference that's that's based on uh, differences between the two nations? Yeah, it's my sense as well that the U.S. and and Canada collaborations um, are exceptional. Um, however, parks do have a place on international boundaries around the world, and part of that is because parks serve as placeholders that allow nations to defer tough decisions in some ways. And so instead of being sites of conflict, a conservation area can be placed against, you know, across the Argentine-Chilean border or the 
um, Ecuador-Peru border and in, in some ways defer some sort of conflict that might occur over the actual siting of the border. And so it functions in some ways uh, similarly to what Adrian described, that the park boundaries then become the actual boundaries um, rather than uh, an arbitrary political line. Um, uh, between the nations, and, and I think that says interesting things about um, the role of parks in uh, national uh, institutions. Um, uh, and, and that and reminds. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ted. I was just going to say that they uh, that that um, of course is different in every context. Well, that reminds me of uh, of uh, incident, uh, case that uh, Jane Carruthers brought up. It was really interesting of. Uh, this movement towards international peace parks uh, and an example of a park that straddles the boundary between, I believe it was South Africa and Botswana, uh, in which uh, she said that uh, the two nations have agreed that uh, when you enter that park, you don't pay the entrance fee until you uh, exit from the other side. Or so. I, I, I can't remember the... the uh, logistics of this, but in any case, the park is actually being uh, co-managed by the two nations, with each one contributing, uh, you know, so many dollars towards the employment of the, uh, the game wardens who um, uh, are, uh, you know, w working on both sides of that international boundary in, in the one park. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh, situation there. So just as a takeaway for the group, uh, when looking at national parks from an international comparative perspective, what are the benefits as scholars that you see to this exercise? I think there's, there's opportunities of, of tracing connections that uh, aren't aren't immediately obvious. And uh, just following up with the, the the peace park idea, I'd like to uh, just get a plug in for my research on the history of Antarctica. And in the 1972, the World Congress um, World Conference on uh, National Parks in Yellowstone. They passed a, a res the delegates passed a resolution calling for Antarctica to be uh, turned into a, a world park. So the, the first world park would be the Antarctic continent. Hmm. And in a sense, this was a way of trying to defuse um, some of the, the, the political conflicts that were still existing in, uh, in Antarctica, and, um, but have similar, similar connections and questions of inclusion and exclusion and the, the value of wilderness within this. And uh, in, in the, uh, the Antarctic case, it was interesting because uh, environmental organizations such as Greenpeace picked up on the, the idea of a world park for Antarctica in their environmental campaigns mm. in, in Antarctica. So when you start thinking internationally about parks, you can make all sorts of connections um, as far away as the, the South Pole um, that wouldn't immediately be obvious, but actually help to think, I think, both um, comparatively and um, or help, help you to see something just in a, in a different light. I would say, from my point of view, uh, focusing primarily on U.S. national park history, um, it's just so helpful to look at it, uh, international perspective, and, and understand the histories in other parts in other parts of the world. Because I think U.S. historians are often uh, vulnerable to a kind of uh, myopia, you know, just being absorbed within our own uh, national history. And uh, I think. I would just cite two examples. Uh, one was uh, the paper that Alan uh, uh, presented on the fact that uh, Canada was actually ahead of the United States in uh, forming a national park 
service, the Parks mm-hmm. Canada. Um, and so where <laughs> the United States might assume that uh, we invented the national park idea, uh, Canada was the first to uh, invent the idea of a national park system um, run by a, na- a federal agency. Um, and then the other example I'd give is, is I'm starting to uh, research and understand New Zealand's national park system. And uh, our, the colloquium was focused on, you know, national parks beyond the nation and, and sort of this assumption of what, what, how has the United States ex- uh, exported its ideas and its expertise to other nations? Mm-hmm. Well, we're not the only nation in the world doing that. Um, even little New Zealand has been very uh, involved in um, helping Nepal uh, in the Himalayas with uh, its National Park Administration, mm. um, sort of following on from the connection from Edmund Hillary being the first to climb Mount Everest. And so ever since the 1980s, New Zealand's been very engaged in that. And I think it's just helpful to, under- to, to for us to sort of step back and realize that the um, uh, uh, United States is not the only one um, exporting or uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, share its influence abroad. I think Ted just gave us a couple of really vibrant examples of that, and and I would agree that I think parks are are one of the best models for internationalizing environmental history because parks exist on at least three levels, right? There's the popular level where most people are, I mean, it's a park, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> people have some sort of familiar experience with it and understand at least viscerally or as part of their being what, what parks are and what they do. And then there's this institutional level um, that, I mean, bureaucrats aren't nearly as, as sort of sexy or popular to talk about, but they have this really important function um, and in making parks work. And then there's also this theoretical level to parks about what they mean and how, how they compare across cultures and across time that um, allows us to kind of deepen that inquiry and we can do each of those levels comparatively and I think reach a much firmer understanding about how societies value the non-human world and, and what that means um, for, for humanity. And Alan, what was uh, what did you take away from this comparative approach to studying national parks? Uh, well, as always, I'm trying to come up with a good T.S. Eliot quote, but I think the <laughs> obvious one is, uh, "We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time." Um, I think that such kind of comparative work allows us uh, to take. Um, if you know, it's not just American historians. I think who tend to who are often focused on their own country. Uh, a lot of us studying our own nation. I think it helps a lot if we if we take a look at what's going on outside, and the fact that national parks have been set up in so many different places around the world gives us really something um, to 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 look at and then and look back and see our own country in a different way. Well, I'm excited to see what kind of publication comes out of this symposium, and uh, it was great to get to hear from at least four of the participants. Uh, I want to thank uh, Alan, Adrian, Ted, and Emily for joining us, and uh, encourage listeners to uh, take a look at the uh, conference website, uh, which will be linked on our show notes page, to find out a little bit more about national parks beyond the nation. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Networking Canadian History and Environment. 
This episode was made by Emily Wakefield, Adrian Hawkins, Alan McEckern, Ted Catton, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you have any ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, contact me through my website, seancourage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this show on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.